What's up, everyone? Happy holidays, and welcome to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week, we got some scene drama from Ronnie Radke, a radio rundown, and our deep dive on the story of AFI's December Underground. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night from 8 to 10 p.m. local time. If you want to check it out, you're not in the area, you can download the station's app. Just search 94.3 The X in the App Store and tune in this Saturday. As always, you can listen to the songs mentioned during this episode on the Note to Scene Spotify playlist. And if you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. So before I get started this week, I wanted to address a few things about the Seosin episode from last week. First off, I made an editor's error and mistakenly labeled Story of the Year's ex-guitarist Phil Sneed as their vocalist. He filled in for Seosin on vocals during their 2004 Warp Tour dates. Actually said it was funny how much he was trying to sound like Anthony on those dates, and he was not too happy about that on Twitter last week. So, my mistake on the member label, but I definitely stand by the Anthony Green note. And secondly, so unfortunately, when I do these dives, it's only a matter of time before I dig up some skeletons. And I always struggle with whether or not I should even bring them up, because they were in the past and a long time ago at that. But people do listen to these things, and I feel some kind of responsibility to make people aware of those skeletons in our current day and age. So one thing I didn't include in the Seosin dive last week was the infamous Show Me Your Booty Hole song because I couldn't figure out when exactly it had come out, so I didn't know where to put it in the timeline. I did some more diving after the episode was up because I had a few people reach out about it and found out that it actually wasn't a Seosin song at all. It was just Bo and Chris from Seosin and then Bo from an old band called Take the Crown. You probably know him now as the vocalist for Bless the Fall. But they started a parody rap group called B2C based off their names. Turns out they release more songs than just Show Me Your Booty Hole. Someone sent me a link to a song that was apparently called Where All My Bitches At. I've seen some other places where it was called something else, but it is one of the most racist songs I've ever heard. So I tweeted it out and Bo from Bless the Fall actually addressed it and replied saying, Me and the guys did Show Me Your Booty Hole. That's the only song we did together. Glad I could clear that up. So take this info for what you will, it bummed me the hell out and I just felt like I should make people aware. So moving on to our news this week, on Tuesday, rapper Playboy Cardi announced he will finally be dropping his long-awaited new album, Whole Lotta Red, this Friday. He revealed in the cover art, pre-orders, and new merch for the record. One of the shirts in the drop shows a picture of Jesus beheaded upside down on an invisible cross with the words falling in reverse on it. To give you all a bit of perspective, if you aren't familiar with Cardi, he's a product of the SoundCloud era. He has two official albums out, his self-titled from 2017 and another called Die Lit from 2018. He's on Interscope, which is funny because that's the major label the album this episode is about came out on. So Cardi has developed this strong cult following over the last few years by essentially doing nothing and just having that brand new type of mystique that we know from the scene. But he first teased the album about two years ago and has strung everyone along since then, pump faking release dates multiple times. 
people are definitely at a saturation point with being let down so many times on a drop that has just never happened, but his base is still big enough for people to show up for the release this week. So my main day-to-day -day job is working for a hip-hop magazine and website called XXL, and I've been following this release close ever since Cardi first teased it. He's never made a direct guitar-based track, but he loves adapting rock and punk aesthetics for his image. Some of it, especially lately, has been a bit shitty just in general. But the second I saw the shirt, I knew Ronnie was going to say something. So morning comes around, and sure as shit, I'm explaining Escape the Fate, Ronnie going to jail, starting falling in reverse, and basically his entire timeline to my boss. It was actually cool because I could tie Ronnie back to Juice World and give us some common ground while I was laying everything out to her. We had done a Juice World cover for the magazine in the fall of 2019, and he actually played songs from Dying Is Your Latest Fashion while they were together for the shoot and talked about how it was his favorite album. Again, it will just forever blow my mind how the scene always manages to find a way, but time and time again, no matter where I find myself in life, something comes up that tugs me right back. But so Ronnie came at Cardi, he added him in an Instagram story saying, cease and desist Mr. Rapper Boy, stop stealing and then replied to Cardi's Instagram post of the album's artwork and said, take my band name off your merch on your store, or I'll just take all the money you take from it. Either way. And then a bunch of kids came at him, and he gave some classic idiot Ronnie responses. My favorite was, my band is huge, had the number one rock song for over a year. The fuck you mean? I think Ronnie does realize some of what he says is ridiculous, but some of the other stuff I think he truly believes. I mean, I guess if you look at one of the hundreds of charts in the world, he had the number one rock song this year for a long time, but not on any that actually matter. He had his first number one rock song on rock radio this year, and that track was certified gold, so you gotta give him that. There is really only one, maybe two non-breakout scene bands that are doing that in 2020. But Ronnie will always be Ronnie and shoot himself in the foot to some extent in literally any given situation. And that was that. The shirt is still up. From what I know, and I could be wrong on this, but from what I know, Ronnie doesn't own the trademark for the words falling in reverse. And since the print shows no likeness to Falling's logo, he doesn't have any grounds to actually do something in a legal capacity. But I think he got what he wanted out of it, which was some headlines and people talking about him. He has always been a master of word of mouth currency, and some people would argue that is the most powerful currency of all. Alright, on to our weekly all-time low radio tracker update. So at top 40, they break even this week at number 31, but they're up over 28% in plays, which is a great sign. If they wouldn't have increased any, they would have dropped down to number 34 this week. So they're still gaining, just going to keep being a slow burn week to week for the next few months. At Alternative Radio, they have finally fallen from their 13-week run at number one down to number three. But what's awesome for the scene is that IDK Howe, which is made up of former Panic of the Disco and Falling in Reverse members, is now at number one with their song Leave Me Alone. I've been watching this song and documenting its rise on the show for months now, and I knew there was something special about the way it was consistently rising week after week. So congrats to Dallin and Ryan. We're going to keep a close eye on them in the future. They might be onto something big here. 
Back over at top 40, MGK and Black Bear fall back to number 20, but they're still up 3.5% in plays, so still good signs. I Prevail is still sitting at number 3 on Rock Radio, but even though they're still falling in plays, so are Foo Fighters and ACDC, so we'll just see what happens here when the dust settles. Ask Alexandria break even at number 12, but Bring Me the Horizon's teardrops jumps from 20 to 17. I still got a really good feeling about the way this song has been moving since they submitted it, and finally, besides All Time Low, the radio story I know y'all are really waiting for, Architects Animals makes another solid jump this week from 26 to 23, which is by far the highest they've ever been on rock radio in the U.S., I mean, give it a couple more weeks and we might see Architects break the top 20 for the first time ever. But alright, that does it for this week's Radio Rundown. Moving on to this week's Deep Dive. So to me, groundbreaking is the best word to describe AFI. They were a give-no-fucks goth punk band that became a give-no-fucks arena rock band. And they did it all on their own terms. December Underground is one of the biggest albums to ever come out of our scene, and it feels like the soundtrack to the end of the world. They took the massive structures of 80s synthwave and arena rock and plastered them in the modern emo aesthetic and gave us one of the darkest, most brooding moments of the scene's commercial peak. So one day, I will do an entire AFI deep dive from beginning to end. These dives just take a lot of time to put together, and I do all of these outside of my main job, so I honestly just want to take some time away from things a bit during the downtime of the holidays. But I do love doing these things, and a lot of people have mentioned to me that they wanted an AFI dive. So with it being December, I figured we might do something a little different and do an album deep dive. I thought it would be much more manageable for me, but for some reason, the deeper I tried to dive, the more walls I ran into in regards to the actual documentation of the December Underground campaign and its tour cycle. I know they have to be somewhere, but I could not find really any comprehensive tour routing from this time. Punk News is, again, the only website that has even somewhat consistent articles from then that are still even live, but the directory on their site is such a piece of shit, you can't access all of them. Absolute Punk would have been the perfect treasure trove of documentation for AFI, but as you all know, Jason Tate pissed that away a few years back. But I did my best, and this is all the info I was able to come up with over the last few nights of digging. So, in order to truly understand the story of December Underground, we have to look at how they created the hype around the album in the first place which was their two albums before it, The Art of Drowning and Sing the Sorrow. I've talked to a lot of AFI fans over the years, both diehard and casual, and Sing the Sorrow seems to be the general answer as to what the band's best record is. It came out in 2003 on DreamWorks Records, which was later bought out by UMG but was still considered the band's major label debut. Although some people want to say AFI all of a sudden flipped a switch and ditched their punk roots overnight, if you listen to their album before this, The Art of Drowning, then Sing the Sorrow, then December Underground, their evolution feels very natural. Drowning still held on to a lot of their old school punk roots while branching out here and there with a big melody or hook, and it had a very refined production quality on top of it. Sing the Sorrow was different. The punk was still there, but it was mixed with a heavy dose of modern rock song structures and even some electronics. 
Everything was the perfect storm for AFI at that point. Emo was surging towards its mainstream peak at breakneck speed in 2003, and their goth aesthetic was about to combine with the movement perfectly. Drowning was huge for the band, and then they delivered on Sing the Sorrow with a slight sound evolution, but still enough to keep most of their punk purist fanbase on board. Drowning just barely sold enough copies to break the top 200 chart in its first week, and then out of nowhere Sing the Sorrow did 96,000 first week and debuted at number 5. Anyone who was watching AFI knew they were onto something big after Drowning Cycle, but the rest of the industry that wasn't paying attention had no idea the success Sorrow had was coming. It was reflective of so many things, but mainly one of the multiple other signals to major labels that emo was about to be a massive thing over the next few years. So like I said, in order to talk about the monumental release of December Underground, you can't even just mention Sing the Sorrow, because without the rapid snowball success of Drowning, we never get either of those two albums. But okay, so Sorrow is out, and AFI is officially a major force in the industry. Girls Not Grey, The Leaving Song Part 2, and Silver and Cold were all successes for the band, receiving notable rock radio play. Obviously, Girls Not Grey was the standout, with the music video getting significant plays on TRL, which played a huge part in getting them to the forefront of Emo's third wave. After the album came out, they headlined tour dates with everyone from the Blood Brothers to Bleeding Through. They were playing around 2,000 cat venues at this point, and they played a handful of dates on Warp Tour that summer, and the crowds they were bringing in at that point were just massive. They were by far one of the biggest bands on the tour that year, and they hadn't even gotten close to their peak yet. All of this momentum was culminating into their cult-like fanbase, the Despair Faction. What I noticed time and time again while researching for this episode is that critics from this time that documented the band's activities always brought up their fanbase and how they seemed to operate a step above your average teen rock band fanbase. They found a level of dedication above what even most bands on Warped at the time were receiving. The words cult-like were very common around that time. Davey Havoc was a commanding frontman. His ghostly presence combined with his trance-inducing vocals was the perfect recipe for a new generation of emo kids to gravitate to in ways that a lot of mainstream music hadn't really seen before. I mean, sure, the industry had just gone through the boy band craze, but there was something about AFI and emo as a whole that was just different. So the Despair Faction was AFI's fan club. It officially launched in 2002 and essentially served as the band's public headquarters. Lifetime membership cost $29.99 and you got access to tons of exclusive content as well as merch items such as shoes and jewelry. I talked a lot last week about the old school message boards and how they contributed to Emo's rise, but the Despair Faction was, again, a step above the message boards and definitely one of the most notable fandom communities to ever exist in the scene. The fan club exploded during the Sing the Sorrow cycle and set the stage for their worldwide takeover in 2006. So AFI recorded December Underground in Los Angeles. According to their guitarist Jade, they wrote around 120 songs for the album, and he has every one of them, unfinished or not, on a personal iPod to this day. Jerry Finn produced the record. So Finn was infamous in the punk and pop punk realms of the scene. He produced Blink-182's Enema of the State, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, and Self-Titled. He did the Boxcar Racer album, Alkaline Trios from Here to Infirmary. 
some 41s, All Killer, No Filler, and so many other classics from our world. He was really responsible for helping refine the sounds of so many albums that blew emo bands up into massive mainstream success stories. Unfortunately, Finn died in August of 2008 from a heart attack. He was 39. December Underground was one of the last albums he ever worked on, and he truly outdid himself. I mean, the band came to him with their magnum opus, and he made it sound exactly how they intended. This album is a culmination of so many eras and so many soundscapes. It's beautiful and haunting at the same time. I don't care what anyone says, when everything is taken into consideration, the music, the commercial performance, the execution, the appearance, it's one of the best albums to ever come out of the scene. The execution was absolutely flawless. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So before any songs were released from the record, the band had been sending fans on this extensive real-life scavenger hunt. I dug up a great archived article on MTV that described what was going on in extensive detail. So here's what it said. It's been going on for months. It has involved websites, audio files, answering machine messages, a classified ad, a comic book store, the dude who handles merch sales for the band Bleeding Through, and the lyrics to David Bowie's Andy Warhol. And AFI guitarist Jade Puget doesn't want to discuss it. We haven't really come out and talked about it because it's kind of in the middle of it, he says, and there's some big developments and revelations coming. We didn't want to stand up in the middle of the theater, in the middle of the movie, and tell people the ending, you know? So what is it? An intricate treasure hunt that's had AFI fans playing Sherlock Holmes. They've spent hours working together via the band's official message board, trying to unravel this tangled web of clues, without even knowing what all of this detective work might lead to. It started with an audio clip, which led fans to a website where they found a menu to a vegan restaurant in Los Angeles that AFI frequent. Within that menu was a sequence of numerals that fans realized was a Louisiana phone number. When they called it, they heard a strange message, two women and two men rattling off even more numbers. Those were decoded using an alphabet code, i.e. 1 being A, 2 being B, etc. This guided fans to a website containing a video of AFI frontman Davey Havoc, his head wrapped in one long bandage. As the clip progresses, hands, concealed in black gloves, begin to remove the bandage from his face. Havoc is mouthing the words Tell, Nothing, and Charlotte. In time, fans would uncover yet another phone number. On the answering machine's outgoing message, a woman named Charlotte advises Georgia to leave your number so we can talk. She also says, I've been trying to reach you on IM, but I can't. Fans even tried IMing the screen name Charlotte Nothing, which worked. Several people received a riddle in French as a reply. They translated the riddle, figured it out, and that directed them to yet another site, this one containing a paragraph comprising lyrics from dozens of AFI songs. By double-clicking on certain words in a specific sequence, fans were led to another site with yet another video. It featured a man scratching down a notation concerning a classified ad in the Toronto Star. On December 1st, the newspaper printed the ad, which was placed by someone named Charlotte. It provided the name and address of a comic book store in Oakland, California. Visitors to the shop asked the store's owner questions about AFI and, before long, were escorted to a back room where a television was set up. 
The fans were shown a video, which ends with bassist Hunter extending his arm with an apple in the palm of his hand. Eventually, AFI fans figured they should look up Charlotte Nothing on MySpace. Her page lists two friends, one named Apple and the other bleeding through. Clicking the Apple MySpace page opens a separate site featuring a video with drummer Adam Carson sitting in a room with a mask over his head, holding five types of flowers. This clip also features backwards audio, which, when reversed, quotes David Bowie lyrics. The mystery doesn't end there. The Andy Warhol lyrics directed fans to a new website with another riddle. It offers dates and writes, Listen to Brandon, but do not tell him. He who knows wears it on his sleeve. He sells the rest to every guest. If you propose, the answer is free. Any ring will do. The dates coincided with the tour for Bleeding Through. Concertgoers approached the dude behind the merch table and asked for the next clue, which was a pin that asks, where are the five flowers? And that brings us to the most recent clue, the website, whereareThefiveflowers.com. The site is still being worked on, but within days, Puget says the next clue should be revealed. So fans have been in something of a holding pattern for the last three weeks, pondering what all this means. This has been going on over the course of several albums, and there's definitely going to be a denouement. But because the band's ongoing, I think the only way we could fully end is if we'd ended. This part of it, the expansion of it, is definitely something that's been going on over the course of the last five months. The fans have really put in a lot of time and effort into it, which is cool, but it definitely has a narrative. It's not like Lost, where they just make it up as they go along. It's definitely going somewhere, but it's leading up to something bigger than an album title, although the album title could be revealed as part of this. Everything we have been doing is tied into the imagery of the upcoming album and the album title and the lyrics and the songs. In retrospect, once the album is released, you'll be able to see how everything ties in. Given that AFI's album is due June 6, it seems everything is about to come to a head in the next few weeks. It was never something that we were even going to consciously expand and bring out into the world, he said. It was maybe just a theme of the band, but I mean there are elements to it that haven't been discovered yet in connection to parts of our past that people haven't put together. Everything from AFI from the past six years is tied into it. All will be revealed soon. So if anyone listening remembers this or even participated in it, send me an email or hit me on Twitter about it. I would love to hear what it was like to follow a band like this. I mean, other than brand new back in the day. So the first song to be released from the record was Miss Murder. The band dropped it on their MySpace page in April. So just a few weeks after that MTV article went up. As most people who are listening to this know, it was a massive lead single and it ended up becoming AFI's biggest song of their career. It was a marching anthem for the Despair Faction. It was a fist-pumping rally cry. It was a punk band creating something to be played in stadiums. It ended up becoming one of only two songs the band ever had debut on the Hot 100, and its highest charting at that, where it peaked at number 24. The only other song they ever had break the Hot 100 was Love Like Winter, which peaked at number 68. AFI officially released December Underground on June 6, 2006, which was 6606, which made the drop feel that much more important. Just thinking about going out, buying the CD, pressing play, and the first thing you hear is Prelude gives me chills. It was a massive, massive, massive success. 
one of the biggest emo first weeks of all time with 182,000 units sold and a number one debut. Remember, My Chemical Romance didn't release the Black Parade until October that year, so the summer was AFIs. A week after the album came out, the band went out on a headlining tour with the Dillinger Escape Plan and Nightmare Review. They didn't play super huge caps on that run, instead they chose a bit smaller venues and doubled up some nights. Like in Chicago, they played Vic Theater, which is a thousand cap, but did it two nights in a row. In New York, they played Roseland Ballroom, which is actually a 3200 cap, and did that two nights in a row. After that, to coincide with the album's release date, they headlined a handful of dates on Warp Tour. The crowds they were drawing at that point were some of the biggest of any band on that run that year. After Warped, in September, they went on to headline a few massive West Coast shows with Tiger Army and Seosin. They were playing 5,000 plus caps at that point, just massive shows. And to tie it into the dive from last week, Seosin was just gearing up to release self-titled around these dates, so a huge look for them at the time as well. After this, AFI closed out the year with Australian and European tours, with a handful of US dates sprinkled in between. At the beginning of December, AFI released their live DVD, I Heard a Voice. It was filmed during their September 15th show with Tiger Army at the Long Beach Arena, which is a 13,000 cap. The film from this show is beautiful and shows just how massive the band was at this point. It's a perfect depiction of the commanding presence AFI had at their commercial peak when it seemed as though they were leading the despair faction, fists raised in the air, to the top of the industry. But something interesting about the underground cycle is how they didn't have an extensive tour schedule. 2007 brought a lot of overseas festivals and some headlining shows, but by October of that year, they had played what would be their final show on that album cycle. So the tour campaign for December really only lasted a little over a year, and then Davey and Jade started Black Audio and began working on what would be the next AFI album, Crash Love, and that album saw a steep drop in commercial performance, coming in with 52,000 first week units compared to December's 182,000. And a lot of other things contributed to that drop as well, but the lack of an extensive touring cycle is definitely something that can be analyzed about this album as to what could have been done differently. But all of that is for the complete AFI deep dive that I promise I will get to one day. But bottom line here is that December Underground is a masterpiece. From the music to the image, every puzzle piece fell perfectly into place for this album. And it's a pristine example of how to capitalize off of quickly snowballing hype from a previous cycle. It not only received a gold certification, but a platinum one as well, meaning it has sold over a million units. In my eyes, even though it came out in the middle of summer, this record has always been a Christmas album. So you still got a week left, go spin it, and pour one out for one of the best albums to ever come out of the scene. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.